question like a play because I will be honest like the minute like I divested my self-worth from an access to a rogue relationship my life got a lot better because I made serious 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 efforts to separate that and my life got amazingly better. That's not to say that I'm not interested in a partnership. That's not to say that I'm not interested in these things. It's just to say that I'm going to focus on quality and not structure. One of the biggest ironies in that is I think that makes you, that is what makes you prepared, actually prepared to handle and to flourish in a romantic relationship. Because, like, all a relationship really is is communicating and relating to each other. Oh, absolutely. The fantasy narrative, the myths and stories we attach to our current definition of romance and what constitutes a good romantic relationship in many ways push people to believe that they're incomplete outside of a romantic relationship. My contention is that no one who feels incomplete is ready for a romantic relationship. (laughs) And it's specifically being able to divorce your idea of self-worth from your relationship status that makes you capable and worthy of a romantic relationship well you know i think one of the aspects like for example people say that like if you don't feel complete on your own that you don't have any business in a relationship right like that's a very common and and it's not necessarily wrong for me my differentiation with that idea is that like we are social animals we are social animals we are wired to find intimacy and to find community and to find caring with other fellow human beings, right? That that is actually a hardwired is hardwiring as a human being. You know, so it's one of those things where you know, rather than necessarily saying, you know, complete or incomplete because that's almost saying perfect imperfect. You know that you have this ideal condition to achieve you know and and none of us actually have an ideal condition to achieve we should constantly be changing and growing throughout our lives so it's not so much complete well yeah and any idea any ideal is by nature an illusion exactly it's a it's a hope so a lot of times it's not so much that you should feel complete, but you should know where your strengths are. You should know where your weaknesses are. You should know what you are capable of offering to others. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, it, it does tie in with what I wanted to talk about in the sense that the, the self is very much a story that we tell ourselves individually And also an overall narrative that we create kind of collectively. But we can't be ourselves just by ourselves. You know, it's we I think part of the reason why we feel the need as these systems of organs and flesh bags to create a self is to not only tie our own parts together, but to figure out how to interact with all these other flesh bags that we're sharing this planet with. Um, and the romantic ideal in America, I think really provides a crystal clear 
illustration of the way in which the kind of story that we create collectively in the form of our ideals for how relationships should be or how people should be even individually or how people ought to act as citizens. We create these stories and those stories trickle down. They have very real impacts on people and on people's perceptions of themselves and also how they treat other people. I mean, I think the romantic model is so clear also as an example of an outdated narrative that is in the process of changing, I think, but but really needs some rather dramatic shifts because the story that we're still telling about what love means in the 21st century and 2014 in America is still rooted in very, very old, archaic, outdated notions of what love is. And if we don't expand our imagination and if we don't tell a different story to ourselves and each other of what love means, how to share it with other people and how to feel whole and complete, uh, we're going to keep repeating the same cycles of absurdity and uh, anger and resentment that our parents and relatives and friends are playing out. Any kind of aggregate perception, whether it's love, whether it's politics, whether it's society, you know, all these things at the end of the day to a certain degree is kind of a crystallization of an aggregate anxiety. Well, I, I think it's the I think it's the aggregate of everything. So see, like I think it's the sum total of like our fear, fear our of hopes, our love and hopes and our, our aspirations. Yeah, like all of that. And the reason I I use that word anxiety is because a lot of times issues like love, issues like hope, issues like goals, generally speaking, they tend to, you know cause anxiety in a lot of people, right? Like, you know, these are very classic anxiety-causing factors in our lives because anxiety is about expectations and hopes and whether we can meet them or whether we're going to fail or whether other people are going to fail us or whether society in large is going to fail us. So that's why I use that word anxiety because it tends to be the condition that all these things often generate in people. Yeah, and I and I think no, I think you're very right. And they generate not only anxiety but misery. And yes. it's and it's specifically because those models that we have for what should constitute the ideal or what even constitutes reality, they're broken now. Those models no longer correspond to the facts at hand and to people's lived experiences. Oftentimes, society doesn't work for a lot of people. You know, when you have large-scale societies, you know, and you're, you're talking about different class and job structures that smaller-scale societies don't necessarily deal with. You know, you, mm. you know, I mean, when you have 150 people, 150 people are each pitching in and to survive mm -hmm. you know it's a matter of survival like you know you don't you don't necessarily have the room to 
to explicitly argue many things. Well, and there's also no real opportunity for bureaucracy. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Well, because one of the biggest aspects that I think large societies end up with, and one of the biggest fears and anxieties that people always have is that as an end result, lar- end result, large scale societies end up with a quote unquote excess and disposable population. <laughs> they do, in some ways. Of what do we do with this quote unquote these people? You know, and a lot of our well, age- and these people very soon become those people. It's one of those things where a lot of our anxieties are rooted in us trying to disassociate ourselves from that position of us trying to, in a certain way, wrongfully divest ourselves and say, "Oh no, I'm not one of them. I have a partner. I have a." job. I have these letters behind my name. I have these things that I can claim that I'm not those people. But it's interesting because that definition of self is composed of nothing but external qualifications or merits or relationships. It doesn't reflect that individual at all. No. You no, know, and not it's and so it's it, and so that's I that's I think like where the truth and our lived experience collides with the reality we are taught to believe, because then we carry the set of impossible expectations with us into our jobs, into our college experience, <laughs> into the dating world, into married life, and and that runs into the truth. And this same kind of failure to meet our expectations happens in politics. It happens in creative ventures. Like, I I think it happens in a lot of aspects of, of every individual person's life. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I'm Seth Pearson. I'm Ikoi Hiro. And this is another episode of the By That I Mean podcast. It has been... So many moons over my hammy since I either saw you or recorded with you. I can't even. When was the last time I was I'm, here? I'm I think really six trying to remember. I think it might have been last year. I mean, I haven't been here in 2014. This is my first time yeah. in 2014. Yeah. It's yeah. your first apparition in my apartment. <laughs> yes. In this fiscal or calendar year. Yeah, so I know it's been at least, you know, five months. At least. Well And I wanna even say like, you know, eight months maybe. How did how did you spend your five to eight months <laughs> <laughs> away from the by that I mean podcast? <laughs> it was very difficult long treacherous you know game of thrones type manipulation (laughs) oh my god did you have like an incest murder subplot that you never told me about (laughs) you don't understand how many people i had to bribe kill and maim to get here today how many did you have to romance then some combination? No, of no, the no. I do all the uh, I let all my minions do the romancing for me. I'm kind of like <laughs> Littlefinger. We're both short. <laughs> I'm just stuck on the phrase I let my minions do the romancing for me. <laughs> Hello, 
this is the Bull I that I mean podcast. I have very attractive minions. <laughs> <laughs> My friends are very attractive people, including you. Oh, well, why haven't you sent me off on a romancing murder incest adventure? <laughs> you can leave the incest part out on my romantic adventures. Just yes, but FYI. I don't necessarily want you in jail just yet. Oh, just yet. Just yet. Just yet. I'll only be put in the Huskow when I've earned it, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. okay. When I when I cross you, that's when I go off to the clink. <laughs> but until then, you'll keep me around. When you cross me is when I send you off to a romantic adventure. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. I feel like at this point, even a compulsory, ill-intentioned romantic adventure (laughs) would be preferable (laughs) to the deserted wasteland (laughs) that is my valley right now. (laughs) But we'll see. We'll just have to see, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, some people call it like a wasteland. They call it the Death Valley. You know, I like to call it like lots of solar energy capacity. Well, first of all, you don't know how pale I am down there. <laughs> there is no sun getting there. <laughs> that is seriously the sun, where the sun does not ever, 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 nope. ever, yeah. ever shine. Oh, no. It's it's shineless down there. So it like is, you're the not- sun has tried for twenty nine years to reach my South Pole, and it's not gotten there. Okay, so I will never <laughs> accuse you of tanning your penis. <laughs> nope. Okay. I shall not be accused. I will not stand for such accusations. I used to know somebody that used to climb into a tanning booth naked for that reason. What? Yes. Don't tell me. Was it a gay? I never asked. Really? Oh, my God. There are so many questions. Did it alter his feeling? Well, like because, looked, well, for me, I was like, but what happens when you get sunburn down there? It's like medium rare dick. You don't want that. Like, does it increase chances of penile cancer? Um, or, or would it increase chances of skin cancer on your penis? Which is a different... Or both. Or both. Like, I feel and like so it's, it's also one of those things where, like, do you, do you like, flip your cock up so that the underside gets <laughs> properly tanned at the midpoint? Oh, I'm done on this side? Do you have the spatula? <laughs> can, you, can you hand me the tanning spatula, Gina? Gina's the tanning employee in okay. this particular dick tanning salon. <laughs> His thing is, like, well, I don't necessarily want to be super pale down there. Wow. And I was like, that is serious grooming that I just cannot even begin to comprehend because I'm a lazy individual. No, I'm sorry. That is not grooming. That is very polite and civilized (laughs) self-mutilation. Grooming is getting rid of something that's already there. (laughs) Such as cutting hair, waxing hair, threading hair. (laughs) Not cooking skin. <laughs> well, you know, I wonder, do like fake tan booth ever have people requesting? I wonder. I wonder if every tanning salon has its own like different policy. I'm sure franchises have kind of franchise-wide mm-hmm. policies. Yes. Because I mean, I, I would also think that it would invoke a certain extra amount of hygienic preparation on the part of the tanning salon. They would have to clean up after that situation. 
Then again, I kind of imagine those things are both tanning beds and hot beds of disease. I mean, tanning beds, because they have UV lights, um, are actually fairly clean from that standpoint oh, alone. No, that's you true. Know, but I'm fake stupid. tanning b- booth are a different story. But a lot of the times the fake tanning booth are like, you know, you stand in like a booth and like the spray comes out. Right. right? The spray tan. You know, so it's, but it's one and of again, those. again, who would dare get their cock spray tanned? Because then, right. whether what it's if a lady or a man going down on you. And it's also one of those things, or what if you're uncircumcised? Like, how do you oh. deal with that? Oh, no. Like, do you, like, oh, no. pull down? <laughs> you know, like. Do you pull down or do you pull up? Um, and then, like, it's also what one. The and how, how do you prevent streaking? <laughs> you know, because it's like, okay, like, you might end up with a tiger penis. Is that what you want? <laughs> <laughs> oh no the, by that I mean podcast <laughs> neither condemns nor affirms tiger penis you can pursue tiger penis at your own leisure and we will not judge you for it but we will also not encourage you in that decision well you know it's one of those things where it's not just the person getting the tan but like I don't think these chemicals are made for oral ingestion. Yeah, well, and, and on the other tip of it, on the side of it that is more closely related to our topic for today, it's interesting that someone would intake our social standards for what constitutes beauty and extend that all the way down there. I think it's a relatively new phenomenon, or at least a relatively, like, new phenomenon in the industrial age to view tanning as a higher class or a more desirable trait. Um, And I think in in other cultures, it still persists that kind of paleness is prized among other qualities of skin coloration. But you have to, at a certain level, be heeding that social programming in order to get your cock tanned. I mean, good lord. That's obviously not the most extreme of ways that we fuck up our bodies in order to attain the social coding for beauty. Mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, I guess relatively it may be less damaging than some <laughs> other ones. Well, I mean, like, I think tanning or fake tanning might be, you know, less harmful in the long run depending on the chemicals used than bleaching. Oof. Oof. Being Asian American, um, I remember, you know, like anal bleaching and vaginal bleaching, you know, becoming a thing here. Or at least being a topic talked about in Cosmo. Whether that's a real thing or a manufactured right. thing, I can't Cosmo say. and late night news. Yes. Right? Yeah. You know, 10 o'clock news. Yeah. Women are doing something amazing <laughs> to their lady parts. <laughs> and you won't guess what they're putting in there. Upworthy, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an upworthy link. You bleach. won't guess what these women are doing. Bleach. With bleach. It's not just the first Nirvana album anymore. <laughs> I've actually seen, like, for example, advertisements for nipple bleaching in Japanese <laughs> magazines for like a good, good twenty years. Wow. Do you buy Japanese magazines now just so you can check the ads for nipple bleaching? <laughs> <laughs> no, I tend to. Ikoi's on that nipple bleach tip. <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those. She's things. on the nip tip. 
No, it was one of those things where I was just like, oh, wow, Americans are really far behind on this bleaching business. Right? <laughs> this has been enough of a business that somebody could afford an advertisement in a major magazine for a long time. That's so funny. Because those are expensive. That's not a cheap advert. That I've seen, like you know, a lot of times it's full page color, you know, with testimonials, and that's expensive. So they must be making enough money to be able to afford that on the monthly. Well, and it basis. and it reminds me of like hearing about how much kind of plastic surgery to westernize Asian faces is becoming more and more popular from the West, like the West. Have always been interested in oh let's look at all these colored people trying to look like us is kind of a clickbait, and I'm not saying that that does or doesn't exist, you know, because that's a complex story of marketing and of commercialism and of colonialism and racism and sexism, you know, and all those things combined. Like、mm-hmm. that's not a very You know, easy. You you can't apply that in every instance and have that stick. That that's very individual to the culture and their history and their history with the West. You know, and their his their modern history now. You know, so it, you can't put like a single thing on it. But the West has always, you know, put this like, oh, everyone wants to look like us.、Mm-hmm. You know, on the other countries. And it defines an image of "quote unquote" us, outside of which all other people are them. It's the embodiment and the creation of that "quote unquote" reality of what our image of beauty is. That, by in its nature not being inclusive, excludes so many people from it. Whether it's Beauty, whether it's jobs, whether it's relationships, whether it's money, the bottom, you know, economics,、um, education, all these things. The bottom line is that you know the bottom line that society has always said is that you know if you have these things, that now you may deem yourself worthy. At the end of the day, that's what these aspects of you know whether it's education, whether it's beauty, whether it's your job. Let that's what society tells you is that you reach a certain level on any of these things, and that is at that point where you may kind of, kind of feel worthy. Or kind no, of. if not even feel worthy, then feel human. Yes, it's it's. Well, but you know, be be feeling worthy is feeling human because worthy is connected to connectedness.、But、that you know,、true. yeah,、true. that you know, we have a voice, that we have a presence, that we're no longer invisible. Right, is what that says. That you now have visibility that these other people do not deserve. We've been talking about cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> And the subject for which I convened this recording session is: I'd like to kind of unpack our ideas of reality, of what we've all been taught is real, and compare them to the truth, and ask ourselves: you know, how's that? How's that working out? Does our countries and 
our own personal image of reality, of our goals and aspirations and what accomplishments we think we need to have to feel complete or worthy. Are those matching up? My thesis for this episode of the By That I Mean podcast is that our countries and really our species images and ideas of reality no longer fit the truth of all of our lived experiences in this world now. Uh, We're at the start of the 21st century and our reality is still not one where men are equal to women. Our reality is still one where non-white people are considered less than human or are considered somehow not the default of humanity. We still have a model of reality where we can endlessly continue to extract fossil fuels from the ground and burn them indiscriminately with no consequence to our planet or to our own species. And I think those and so many other basic tenets of our shared reality, whatever political or non-political energy is within us, I think our collective models of reality are no longer fitting the truth of our lives. And I think a lot of our discussions that we have, whether it's about beauty or about politics and left versus right and all of that, I think a lot of those discussions are becoming harder and they're breaking down more easily and among more people who would otherwise find common ground because we aren't talking about the basic realities and the basic truths that are different from the reality that we were taught to believe and that a lot of us still try to hold on to. A lot of times, you know, reality is not just about because there is objective reality. You know, the sky is blue, for example. Well, but let's let's interrogate that briefly. I wasn't I wasn't going to bring that up myself, but I personally don't believe that objective reality exists. Mm -hmm. I believe not in relativity. I believe that. We can individually only see so much. Yes. And what we can see and perceive with our external senses is incredibly limited. Yes. And limiting. Yes. All of our methods for and our technology for, quote unquote, objectively measuring things are still technologies and procedures that we can only quantify and qualify using our external senses and our brains. Oh, absolutely. So I also think those are limited. I absolutely. do I do break with so many people who say like, you know, like there's no good or evil, man. I believe there are good and evil, and I believe that there is the sky is blue quite often. At, yes. times, at times. Not all the time, you know. Um, it also depends on where you live. Collectively, altogether we hold great power to get, if not right on pinpoint accuracy on the truth, on that nebulous kind of ideal, which I don't think is possible, I think we can get extremely close. And I think we can get closer and closer over time. So it's like one of those charts you have where the kind of where the kind of uh, where the arrow goes down the axis and never quite touches 
the axis, but gets so, so close. And keeps getting closer and, and keeps closer. Ge- and hopefully keeps getting closer and closer. But I don't think that if there is one objective truth that transcends any and all subjective conscious experience, I don't think we could possibly perceive it. Truth is different from data. Right. And, and, and let's also be specific about the words that we're using, because I'm using reality in the sense of the story that we individually tell ourselves. We say, this is, this is what's real to me. Mm-hmm. And we also create a story collectively as yes. countries, as neighborhoods, as families, as teams. We create these definitions of what is what is real to us and what is not real or what is wrong, what is bad, what is different, you know. And I think you bring up a really good point because one of the more difficult aspects of talking about various factors is getting people to realize what is institutional versus what is personal. Yes, yes. And And that divide and being able to bridge that divide in conversation makes a huge difference as to whether that conversation is productive Absolutely. Or, or counterproductive. Absolutely. And, and also I wanted to kind of define that when I say the truth, I'm talking about that kind of absolute correct 100.0, infinite zeros percent correct, accurate truth that I don't personally believe we can perceive it as humans. I concede it may exist, though, and that hopefully if we get better at our processes and our technology that we can get closer and closer to observing that. But again, that doesn't mean that every individual person would accept that truth as real. It doesn't mean that we would all collectively accept the truth as real. You know, we accepted as reality the idea that the earth was in the center of everything for many, many hundreds of years. We accepted definitions of non-white humans as a mathematical three-fifths fraction of a person in America. Well, yeah, in, in the United States. I mean, other countries and we are so recent. various different you know, right, and of, and we're yeah. we were we are one of the latest in the long line mm-hmm. of systems of power that have been set up specifically to exploit and to create others and to keep those others apart or under or separate. Well, and one of that aspect, and I think you know, not understanding um, institutions and systems versus personal is what actually makes it possible for people in power to do the moving goalpost is always moving technique of keeping people separated. I completely agree. And like part of that is done in the story that those with power tell, either when they're already in power or when they're out of power and want to get back into power. And part of it is also the story that we create for ourselves, the model of reality that each of us individually creates. I feel that you can't fully separate both of them mm-hmm. because, like you were saying, with, with those external definitions of self, mm-hmm. we really only can be defined in and by and with the observations we make with our senses, our limited, faulty human senses, the relationship we have with all these other flawed flesh bags on this planet, and our kind of memory, our individual and collective memory. So the first article I wanted to discuss was 
really about memory, because I think much like with the idea of absolute truth, we have a model of what memory is that doesn't really match what the actual brain function is and and what it means in practice. Yeah, memory is incredibly faulty. That's why witness accounts are often inaccurate. Exactly right. And not just inaccurate, but But wildly confabulated in the moment of their supposed retelling. Or also very highly, um, you know, susceptible to suggestion later on. Very malleable in the moment. Um, And I, I found an article from 2012 from The Guardian, and it's called The Story of the Self. It's by a psychologist named Charles Fernyhoe. I'm I'm just going to quote a couple things from it that really leapt out at me because models in our society, both for romance, but also for the relationships between groups of people. So I'm talking about between races, between cultures, between class, class. Um, a lot of these rely on retribution. They rely on resentment. They Mm -hmm. rely on cycles of resentments and retribution and vengeance. And those can be physical violence. They can be electoral if it's in a democracy or a republic. But I think no matter what form it takes, vengeance is a limited and limiting way to go about relating to people. We are still playing out so many cycles of vengeance and gamesmanship and attempting to make a make our game zero sum but it's based on a thing that as you're saying is is just so very flawed that we shouldn't be relying on it to develop our ideas for reality Ferniho says when i cast back to an event from my past i don't just conjure up dates and times and places I'm somehow able to reconstruct the moment in some of its sensory detail and relive it, as it were, from the inside. I become a time traveler who can return to the present as soon as the demands of now intervene. When you ask people about their memories, they often talk as though they were material possessions, enduring representations of the past to be carefully guarded and deeply cherished. But this view of memory is quite wrong. Memories are not filed away in the brain like so many video cassettes to be slotted in and played when it's time to recall the past. They are mental reconstructions, nifty multimedia collages of how things were that are shaped by how things are now. Autobiographical memories are stitched together as and when they are needed from information stored in many different neural systems. That makes them curiously susceptible to distortion and often not nearly as reliable as we would like. And then he talks about exactly what you mentioned, which is eyewitness testimony in in jury trials. It's so malleable. Um, But then he says even highly emotional memories are susceptible to distortion. The term flashbulb memory describes these exceptionally vivid memories of momentous events that seemed burned in by the fierce emotions they invoke. In the aftermath of the terrorist attacks of 9-11, a consortium of researchers mobilized to gather people's stories about how they heard the news. When followed up three years later, almost half the testimonies had changed in at least one key detail. For example, people would remember hearing the news from the TV, when actually they initially told the researchers that they had heard it through word of mouth. What accounts for this unreliability? One factor must be that remembering is always re-remembering. 
And that just, that was really mind blowing to me when I read that, that last line there. Remembering is always re-remembering. I don't know about you, but like, I, I like to read those neuroscience articles about like what they're, what, what the brain doctors are doing. Yes. Um, and I read recently that pretty much all thinking to one extent or another is emotional, you know, and we dress it up in this in this dance of rhetoric and language and storytelling that we call reason. But really, at its core, all of our ideas and, and thoughts are, are, are about trying to communicate emotions. It was very illuminating to me to be aware of the conscious aspect of memory, to be aware that the act of remembering is a is an act of creation, not an act of pulling out something from an archive to view. Yes, that you know the human mind is is not a machine, at least in what well, we it, view it is a machine. It is a machine, but it is not what we think of. Like you know, when you think of a computer, our brain is not a hard drive with a motherboard and a chip. Precisely, that, yeah. precisely. But but interestingly, like our model of reality for what constitutes memory is the Memorex model. <laughs> is the, the Memorex model you know, is that is that you know people remember accurately. I mean, and also it's one of those things where, for example, when you're talking about you know very deep personal trauma, a lot of times trauma is intimately connected to stigma. It is intimately connected to shame. We live in a society that blames victims. And so, for example, with, you know, sexual assault testimony, what may come out initially may change over time. And a lot of times it is not because the victim is lying, but because the victim is aware of their position, is trying to mitigate being blamed for, you know, this horrible thing that has fallen upon them that they are not responsible for. A lot of times we pick up cues by tone, by body language, by the questions that people, you know, choose to focus on. And as social, you know, creatures, we respond to them because at the end of the day, a lot of times our biggest response is one, fear. And the second biggest response, which is related to here, is we don't want to be rejected. We want to be heard. We want to be accepted. We want those things. Right, right. But the... but. What makes that impossible is when the model of reality that most people are still subscribing to defines women as less than fully human, defines sexual assault as being something that the victim can be partly or mostly responsible for. A lot of times, you know, people don't understand trauma that they don't understand the human brain enough they don't understand so many things that you know we are so quick to judge and tell people that they're liars you know when it's not that so much that they're liars but like what are we asking of them what are we invisibly placing a pressure on other people by our line of questioning by saying, for example, you know, what were you wearing? Were you drinking? 
that implies responsibility on the other person, of the victim, you know, rather than... And even if it doesn't imply responsibility, it confers guilt. Yes. It shifts blame away from the actual perpetrator of a violent act. Yes. And I've come to think violence as a social disease, Mm -hmm. but we can separate that from the actual ways that we supposedly punish crimes in our society because we don't live in an age when sexual assault isn't a crime under the law in the books, but we still live in an age where it's illegal and yet it is completely epidemic or rather it is pandemic against women. Well, and I don't think it's necessarily just against women, but one of the aspects of, I think, well, like, for example... No, exi- it's, it's, against, it's against men as well, and, and men are taught to minimize it and taught to participate in silence about it yes. and to participate in the language that encourages women to be silent about it. And it's ironic that the way that that's expressed in language from people who do question the violence of sexual assault, it's a sick irony that it comes in the form of asking if the victim is a liar. Because the only real lying is taking place if the victims don't come forward, if they're shamed into silence. That is a lie. That is the lie. The role of shaming. And that is one that... of the main mechanisms in not only enforcing kind of group rules and beliefs, but in, in, in the service of making our model of reality real, making it true, making it into systems of power or systems of kind of uh, tribe or team-based mm-hmm. groups of people. And it also ends up in our laws mm-hmm. and those laws and the systems that we put in place that express our kind of model of reality make actions and truth trickle down into people's lives. That's what's actually trickled down. And you bring up a really good point because for example, you know, when you're talking about sexual assault, you know, um, and as somebody that takes that subject very seriously, You know, one of the aspects that, you know, is a very difficult thing to bridge is the false accusation narrative that the opposition who believe that sexual assault is not a serious issue often love to bring up. False accusation is a reality that it does happen. What people don't understand is that the vast majority of false accusations fall upon shame, fall upon trying to kick the can down the line. For example, you know, there was um, a case where a nun lied and admitted to lying about sexual assault and actually, you know, blamed a, she said that she was sexually assaulted by a random black man. Hmm. And it ended up that, you know, she had a consensual relationship with another man, ended up pregnant, and did not, you know, but, and that's shame. It's Mm -hmm. not shame tries to get people not to accept their position and accept their responsibility, but kick the can down the line to a weaker, more vulnerable, more, you know, amorphous group of people that they can place 
blame upon because and not only that but it's the model of reality we collectively have for victimization particularly for like sexual victimization and sexual violence forces women to deny the truth of their experience lest they be cast out of our kind of collective sense of belonging cast out and rejected from society or for the, from their friends and family, from their church. Yeah, it's also not just necessarily women, but for example, gay men or queer men or bisexual men have been... And trans, lots of transgender gender, men. You know, have, have, or, you know, transgender in, in all directions have, mm-hmm. you know, they've always had to deal... Well, like, for example, you know, people, when you say pedophilia, they think of men with boys. In statistical reality, it's much more common with men and girls. We're not to say that, you know, men abusing boys is not or is is a problem or is not a problem, but that it allows people to hold on to preconceived notions about a population. Whether it is gay men as pedophiles, whether it is black men as rapists. Mm-hmm. And perpetuate those stereotypes in trying to absolve guilt. I think it's important to express all of these things that we're talking about in the context of the emotions. Because again, like, like I was saying earlier, like I really think all thinking is emotional. And part of the way that we avoid the collective and individual shame of oppressing each other and of allowing others to oppress our fellow humans with impunity is the emotions created in us, the people who are not the active participants or the active oppressors or the active abusers. But But how do you define active? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly is the point. You know, I mean, because exactly. And it's well, and spe- just to specifically directed toward what we were talking about, like the term rape culture gets thrown around uh, a lot more now. And there have been kind of a lot of white comedians specifically, but a lot of people um, on the Internet who've tended to mock the idea of that. And much like with discussions around privilege It's important that we recognize that the people who suffer from those broken models of reality don't have the lived truth and experience of being oppressed and beaten down and marginalized and dismissed for those reasons. So they're not going to have necessarily the emotional context to understand it when we talk about it in terms of rape culture, or if we talk about it in terms of white privilege. But when you put it in the specific terms of the lived truth that people undergo, the kind of assistance and help that they're not able to ask for, the pursuit of justice that they're cut off from having even before they start, then it becomes more real for people. And part of the reason I'm really excited to have you here to kind of talk about our reality is that I think this story of reality is not only outdated, but that as a consequence of of that outdatedness, a lot of people out there who are going to listen to this soon or later 
are going to be coming to the show at a point when they realize that these models, these stories that we've told ourselves and each other no longer fit this world that we live in. And I want, if little else other than informing people, I'd like to help some of the people who hear this arm themselves with an understanding of how to deal and how to flourish in a world where you don't have and can't rely on your parents and you can't rely on your government and you can't rely on your society to reliably tell you what is real and what is good and what is true anymore. A lot of us aren't going to have that, aren't going to have those systems. A lot of us didn't even grow up with those systems in place in the first place. Well, I mean, that's one of the aspects about about communication, about empathy, is that we, you know, a lot of times society treats empathy as a personality trait when it is, to a certain degree, a skill that can be taught. It's a muscle. Yes. Empathy, empathy is a muscle, and you need to flex it, and you need to exercise it often and consistently, or it will atrophy. Yes. And, and and there are personality traits, sure, I'm not going to necessarily say that there isn't, but that it's a teachable skill as well. You know, it's just like muscle. Like, for example, you don't learn to play basketball unless you teach somebody, you know, dribbling skills, of shooting skills, of aiming skills. Like these, like, you know, teaching somebody to play basketball. Now, whether they become adept players or, or superstars may be dependent on talent. And also, I want to be really clear that I don't want to teach people how to think. And I don't want to teach people what to think. And I would never trust anyone, whether they had a podcast or a fucking TV show or anything, to tell me what to think. I want to help people teach themselves how to think. Because, like, as someone who was born into tremendous privilege and still benefits from a great deal of it, but has come to understand some of it, one of the biggest privileges of my entire life was being taught critical thinking from the very earliest age. Because of that and other factors, I learned early on that reality and what we define as ourselves, are those things are stories that we tell ourselves and that we have not only the ability but the obligation to define that for ourselves or they will get defined for us. And it's also just not definition, but giving, you know, allowing yourself the room to change, the room to grow, the room to look at new information as it comes out. It is not a striving for perfection, but a striving for growth. Because one of the biggest aspects of valuing growth is not so much how to think, but how to ask questions always and continuously. Right, and it's and it even sparks in me the thought that, like in our in our, again, America's twenty first century idea of growth, is still very much rooted in the Reaganomics model, where growth is short term profit. What will it do for me now? Exactly, that 
has created and has become part of all of our systems of power. It's become, I, I think it drives the kind of consumer economy we have, the emphasis on cheap goods, which becomes an emphasis on in a, in a pandemic globally of cheap labor and underpaid labor. I think it's trickled down into the Western world's individual sense of what success is. I think it defines what we still see as the American dream. When the only question you're taught to ask is, what will this do for me now? Then that's how you treat every transaction. That's how you will treat your relationships. It's how you will treat your own life. It's how you will treat and define your goals for your future, for your society's future, for your families and your children's futures. These realities that we set up and then make true define a lot of the parameters and a lot of the outcomes for what we make of this life. That's why I think it's so important that people become conscious of what reality they're living. Yes. Because merely becoming conscious of it changes it. Well, it's one of the things that, you know, we haven't discussed that I would like to emphasize is that a lot of reality, a lot of what we perceive to be reality are assumptions. We have a collection of assumptions that we accept that we don't even question. That that is what eventually builds our worldview and our reality, right? Is that we have this whole huge host of assumptions that we've never learned to question. You know, because, I mean, for me, like, you know, being a very, very healthy child and then going into my teen years and developing a lot of health issues because so much of our society is built on physical health, of you being able to work, of you being able to, quote-unquote, be productive, of producing value with that value being based on economics of money. Not necessarily of kindness or consideration or intellect, but that that needs to be profit. And that needs to be profit not just for you, but your boss, right? You know, so it was one of those things where, like, becoming sick as a teenager, looking at my life going, there is a good chance that I may not quote-unquote, be productive in my life as my peers due to my physical abilities that are of no control of my own. Like, that experience, and it took a good 20 years of that experience on and off. And it, again, created that anxiety in you, the how am I going to thrive? How am I going to live? How am I going to be happy? What is my happiness going to be? If I'm not fitting this particular model that society yes. has taught me. But it also made me realize, you know, and, and to a certain degree, that is the beauty of social media is that it lets you come into contact. It allows you communication with people you never would have met in physical life. You know, so being able to talk to so many people that had similar issues, that had similar barriers, you know, it was like, oh, we're not alone. It's also, we're also not unworthy. 
that we have a lot to offer, but we need a different paradigm in able to fully exercise what we have to offer. Yeah, and it's and it's again like I like I first kind of brought up earlier. I think we're in a unique time when more and more and more of us are going to lose the privilege of holding on to those assumptions. We are going to be deprived or threatened or whatever particular form it may take. I think more and more of us now are forced into the recognition just through having more experiences that reveal it, that these kind of models and these stories that we were given are insufficient to describe the truth of our lives. You know, and we've had, humanity has had for the last several thousand years, systems of power, ideologies, religions, tribes, um, and eventually uh, races and classes uh, as means to set a collective story, to impose a reality onto the greater world or onto your particular landmass that you happen to live on. But those gatekeepers of reality no longer have the credibility and the trust of all of us. And even as fun-lovey and sprightly and carefree as this new pope is, people are still leaving the Catholic Church in droves. People are still leaving organized religion at very increasing rates. I think it's always been true that reality is a kind of chimera. Like, it's, it's always been a kind of mirage that we set up. But I think it's because of social media, because of our communication ability without those gatekeepers lording over us and able to censor us or make part uh, one of us into a scapegoat for the other to blame. I think there's great potential on the upside for us to collectively realize how outdated this old reality is that we've inherited and create a new one. But I also think that same opportunity exists on the downside of people to become truly disillusioned to the extent that they don't even buy into any of the social game at all anymore. I think a strain of that thinking definitely persists among the dude bro set, among libertarians who being confronted with the truth of our government systematically being horrible to people on behalf of private profit and private interest who take that government fucked up and turn it into the idea that there should be really no government at all. Well, I think that is actually a, a lack of understanding of sociology. Because that is my background. Like, I never got right. my bachelor's, but, you know, sociology has something, been a topic that's been an eternal source of fascination. It's been an etor- eternal source of how I constantly look back and evaluate my position. 
you know, because it's, I mean, you know, because sociology, you know, it, in, I mean, it's it's about, and that's, if I can say out of, you know, the, the, the sociology classes that I took in college, that made the biggest difference for me. The biggest difference for me in being able to look at a situation and analyze a situation was that difference between institution versus private and personal. Yeah, and I really think that is one of the key ways that libertarian and nihilist and anarchist ideologies fail. They don't take into account the incentives that are really at play for people to create models of reality that exclude whole parts of the population, that systematically allow exploitation of people's labor or exploitation of people's bodies. The, the mind that resorts to the idea that no government is better than any government has never been victimized by a government <laughs> or has never, their sense of self has never been at threat. They are, in almost every example, people of privilege in one form or another. Well, I think for, you know, I, I think it's, it's, I think maybe within our borders in certain communities that may be true. You know, I think, I mean, like, I mean, for example, the Vietnamese community up until I think the demographic is changing and I need to look more at data before I become more sanguine about this position. But Vietnamese have predominantly been Republican for a long time. You yeah, know, I'm thinking... Uh... Because they, you know, the vast majority of if the... If I remember correctly, I think An Joseph Cao was the first Vietnamese congressman from Louisiana. And he was, I think he was from my parish and he was definitely a Republican. Yeah. Well, because they escaped from a communist mm. regime mm -hmm. at that point. But it's also one of those things where, you know, the... Con I mean, because... You know, the the idea of democracy, the idea of freedom, the idea of communism, the idea of socialism, anarchism, nihilism. A lot of these issues, you know, what looks on paper is very simplistic and what happens in real life is very different. I'm not one of those people that necessarily say that communism is not about freedom or that, you know, capitalism is the only way to freedom. It's like just with technology, you know, everything about technology, what makes it good, what makes it bad, it depends on the definition, it depends on the application. Absolutely, and also of like the balance between different countervailing forces and countervailing and sometimes opposing ways of distributing power. Yeah, so it's one of those things where like I'm not sanguine in saying that like, you know, I can never say that capitalism is bad or that communism is good. I can only say that inequality is a terrible fucking thing. And a destabilizing fucking thing. thing. And, well, and, yeah. and that's, that's the fundamental aspect of like for, you know, one of the things that I've realized and one of the benefits of actually like not being the most social person and not being 
somebody that gets out very often is that it does allow me to like sit in my own room in my own world and stew for a while and just like analyze and tease apart the shit out of things well and I, and I think I think a lot more people are becoming like that and even even people who may not be as much indoor folks as you and I <laughs> may be in a position now where they are questioning and they are heavily doubting some of those basic stories that they were taught to believe growing up. What I one thing I always remain vigilant about is the propensity toward conspiracy thinking mm-hmm. and our innate ability to be duped by a story. Yes. Because yes, those those collective realities we define and then impose on ourselves are never completely perfectly translatable to every individual and they all get internalized different ways by different individuals, but like we've been talking about, they are also used against groups. And in many ways, conspiracy and conspiracy culture were what drew me personally into politics. In high school, for an American history class, I wrote a long paper about Project Blue Book, which was the U.S. government's official investigation into the UFO phenomenon. And it just got me really fascinated by the persistent but ever-changing conspiracy theories that... Americans and really people worldwide now come up with and and that not only kind of occupy this fantasy space that we keep for ourselves and our imaginations, but really inflect our politics. And I mean, in America specifically now, the Tea Party is the new Republican Party, and it's the dominant force in our American political narrative. And it is obsessed with conspiracy theories that only 10 or 20 years ago were forbidden to bring into the mainstream political conversation, but are now completely completely mainstream, completely normalized. Um, and I see a lot of potential risk in the lack of our gatekeepers or any reliable or trustworthy people or institutions to define what our ideal reality is and the reality that we should seek to create in our society. And I do have a comment on that, you know, because, I mean, I've spent the last few years, you know, mostly not going out. You know, and, and well, you know, it's really mainly been like the last year or so that I've really, you know, focused on taking care of my health and not going out and really saving my energy. But the one thing, if there is absolutely one thing that for me, you know, and, and it may be different for other people, but for me, you know, has crystallized a lot, a lot of what can be done to change and drastically not just change the conversation but change the direction of the world actually came back to you know me sitting and you know running a fever because you know fevers are great for thinking you don't have anything else to do they're very clarifying yes they really are one of the things that my political science professor and i am sorry i don't remember your name because i'm terrible with names (laughs) (laughs) i will have to look but 
said is that a lot of times, you know, I remember him and I, and he was a lot, actually, politically, he was a lot more conservative than I was. But he was a very good professor in that he would want to talk to you and he would want you to find your own direction of politics that was good for you and not what was good for him. That was what made him an incredible instructor. And I actually never finished his class because I got sick and I ended up having to drop out of class. But I remember having a long conversation with him. And he looked at me and he said, you know, at the end of the day, he's like, you're a really empathetic person. And he was like, I am going to tell you something the way I think you should look at politics. You can take it or leave it. Mm. But I've been talking to you. You're one of my favorite students in class. And he said, look. For somebody like you, when you look at law, when you look at the proposed details of what is being presented, you are the type of person that can really stand up for the most vulnerable. Mm. You are the person that can do that. Look at legislature of who is the most vulnerable. And fight for them. That is how you will be most effective. That's cool. It's wonderful that he felt that connection to you and felt compelled to offer a potential direction without imposing that as as what you'd somehow be failing if you didn't embrace. And it just so happened that it <laughs> that it does fit and, it, and you have embraced it. He was like, you know, whenever you raise your voice, you're always trying to... You know, he's like, you know, what is it? Where does that come from? I mean, in all honesty, that comes from my Buddhist background. Mm. You know, I hate Buddhism as a religion and people <laughs> shoot me for saying that. But I hated this religion because and, and I'm not talking about religion as individual persons or individual churches or temples, but as an aggregate force. Mm hmm. That anything well, given enough power and enough priest prestige becomes corrupt. And religion is very easy on that. And Buddhism is no exception from Christianity, from Islam, from cults, of anything else of corruption and harm. Absolutely. Well, and I also find it interesting that it's the, the philosophy of it is and non-ideological like it does avoid ideology at all costs but people have made it like you know exactly. there is a guy in, in is it, it ray through he's he is you know invoking buddhist vi violence against muslims yeah he calls himself the buddhist taliban the buddhist bin laden wow and i'm just like have you ever read a goddamn <laughs> buddhist text in your life you know, but that is fundamentally what religion does is religion as a not an individual or even a small scale congregation, but what it does as a social force, unfortunately, has been a corrupting force. Right. Well, and, and I think there are aspects of it, um, especially in its kind of hierarchical nature and it's clinging to dogma and ideology. Again, I think when you when you make these models of reality an an inflexible thing that makes them much more fragile. Yes. And much more easily capable of being shattered by a truth that 
calls any one part of it into question. I think that's why you see people fleeing the Catholic Church only after thousands of abuse victims come forward and only after it becomes clear that the system itself worked to insulate the teachers of that inflexible dogma from their own horrific violations and transgressions against that dogma. Well, I mean, one of the things that, like, for example, you know, I mean, I, I, I identify as an apathist, which is, <laughs> I don't give a fuck about God. Like, if God exists, he can There is not enough middle fingers. The, I the word I came up for that, I come with, and the word I came up with for that is agnostopathetic. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> don't you know, know, don't give a fuck. Not. Yeah, <laughs> apathyism, that's another word, you know, don't know, don't give a fuck. Like, yeah. the, the question of God is not important to a lot of, you know, what's going on in our current world. And that'll wrap up this episode of the By That I Mean podcast. I'm Seth Pearson, and we're going to have at least one or two more episodes coming up with Ikoi, continuing this conversation about our shared reality and how it compares to the truth. I hope you find this 1% as interesting as I found it. I've been really excited to sit down for longer conversations with my co-hosts and not just focus on current events. And I hope it's interesting for you. I consider it a kind of step forward for the podcast and a way to kind of differentiate us from pretty much any other pundit, bullshit, reactionary current events based show. I have another set of episodes that are on the way with our other guest co-host Chris Godwin who you have known and loved before and he has since embarked on a journey to New York City. One of those people but we miss him dearly and I can't wait to share our conversation with you. The By That I Mean podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. Our website is themfp.org. You can follow us on Twitter at MFPSeth. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash by that I mean. If you like the show, subscribe to the By That I Mean podcast on iTunes. And again, I apologize that it's been so long since I've put an episode up, but I've been working on music. Yes, I'm going to plug right now. That's what's going to happen. I just released my first single. It's a cover of a Fleetwood Mac song called Storms off of the album Tusk, and you can buy it on iTunes, you can buy it on Google Things, you can buy it on Amazon Things, you can buy it on my website thing, uh, which again is the mfp.org, where you can also hear all the other episodes of the By That I Mean podcast and see photos I've taken. Thank you for listening. I hope you get something out of this. And I can't wait to share the next episodes with you. The next episode will go up next week.